after a solid two weeks off, uh, I trust that your Christmas, um, I almost said your Christmas and your Easter, but we haven't gotten there yet. I trust that your Christmas and your New Year's has been good. I pray that it was restful. Uh, hopefully you actually got to take a break uh, to recover, to celebrate the birth of the Lord and the beginning of a new year. Uh, I'm excited about the fall, for not the fall, but the spring for us uh, in 2018. There's a lot of cool stuff that's coming up, some of which I can't really um, talk about yet. Um, none of it is bad, like I'm not going anywhere. Um, nothing bad is happening. Good things are happening. Uh, we've got some cool possible speakers lined up. Uh, we're going to be doing a book study that I'm going to talk about in a little bit in, on Sunday afternoons. Um, in like March and April, we're going to be walking through the season of Lent together as we sort of remember uh, Christ's temptation in the wilderness, uh, his passion, the week leading up to his crucifixion, and then his death and resurrection. Uh, but for this season, uh, the next five to seven weeks or so, uh, we're back in the book of First Kings, which was a series we began probably three or four weeks ago. Uh, we haven't been in First Kings for a while, and so it's probably worthwhile for me to just sort of remind everybody of where we've come from, especially if you're joining us for the first time. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn with me to the book of First Kings, chapter 8. will be in verses... Um, verses 22 to 27, and as you're turning there, just so you kind of remember where we've been over these last few weeks. Um, my, one of my favorite movies, I won't say my favorite movie, uh, but one of my favorite movies is 500 Days of Summer. Now, don't take that as like a pastoral recommendation. I'm not telling you that you should go watch it during your quiet time. Uh, I'm not saying that everything that's said or done in that movie reflects the gospel. I'm not going to talk about like gospel-centered on readings of 500 Days of Summer. Um, why I like that movie is that, by and large, I think it reflects the way that real life plays out in relationships and friendships and friendships that are kind of relationships, but nobody can really tell. And the movie starts uh, with the narrator saying, uh, you should know up front that this isn't a love story. And if you've watched the trailers but don't know how the movie ends, you kind of think that that might be a trick, that, that he's trying to kind of psych you out and make you expect something that's not quite how it turns out. But when you finish the movie, you realize, no, this is not a love story. Uh, one person loves another person who doesn't love him back and never really can love him back in the way that he loves her. I just kind of ruined the movie. Um, <laughs> but what the narrator says up front is true. This is not a love story. Much in the same way, First Kings wants to let us know up front, uh, this is not a love story. Uh, this is not a romantic tale of Israel's greatness. Uh, it's not a story about Israel's rise to power and its glory as a nation. First Kings begins with David, who is the prototypical king of Israel, the king by which all kings are measured. David is about to die. And so you know right off the bat, the greatest king that Israel's ever known is dying in the first two chapters. This can only get worse. And now, much like 500 Days of Summer, it gets better before it gets way, way worse. And we're sort of in this season where it's gotten better. It seems like things might actually work out in the end. David's son Solomon has taken the throne after him. Uh, God gives him sort of this coronation present. He says, ask of me anything. And Solomon says, I would like wisdom. And God says, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give you more than what you asked for. And so God gives Solomon this wisdom to lead well. Solomon takes up this task of building a temple for God. This was something his father David couldn't do because David, uh, the scriptures say, was a man of bloodshed. He fought a lot of battles. There was blood on his hands. Some of it was just. Some of it was unjust. 
all of it made him unfit to build a temple. And so his son Solomon has taken up that task, and he calls together some of the surrounding kingdoms, non-Jewish people, to build a temple for the God of Israel. There's these uh, nations of Gentiles that come together for that process. And so the temple kind of becomes this reverse Tower of Babel. Uh, If you've read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the Tower of Babel was the structure that the nations of the world gathered to build. And they said, we're going to build something and ascend up to heaven. We're going to try and dethrone God. But the temple is built by Israel and the surrounding nations, and they say, we want to make a dwelling place for God here on earth. And so they build this temple, and as you walk through the really intense description of what this temple looks like, you begin to realize it's meant to look like a garden. It's meant specifically to look like the Garden of Eden. It's meant to hearken back to this lost time in humanity's past when God walked with Adam, when God was present among his people. And so the temple is built. That's where we left off in chapters 6 and 7. And we're left uh, with this question, at least that's where we left off several weeks ago, is how do you christen or celebrate or launch a temple that's been built for the living God? Now, in in our modern day and age, uh, we feel like when we build something significant or launch something important that you can't just sort of throw it out there and see if it sinks or swims. Like when a new business is launched, maybe you've seen in TV the the ribbon cutting ceremony where the mayor cuts a ribbon, and I don't really know what that symbolizes, but that's a thing that we do as a way of saying, hey, this new business that we've invested a lot of time in, it's officially open for business. Maybe it's selling pancakes, or maybe it's selling pizza pancakes. I don't know. Whatever it is, we we feel like we have to inaugurate it. Like Chick-fil-A has this grand opening ritual Or if you get there within the first 24 hours of the opening, then they give you free Chick-fil-A for a year because it doesn't feel right to just say, all right, we're open, come on in. We feel like we have to market somehow. You know, I I forget that Tampa is a port city uh, until I'm driving down Channel Side and I hit the traffic for the cruise ship launches. And and with things like cruise ships, um, any sort of seafaring vessel, there's all sorts of rituals that cultures develop to launch them into the ocean. I was actually looking into this earlier this week. So in 18th and 19th century France, the way that they would christen a new boat looked like a baptism. So they would appoint a godmother and a godfather for the boat, and then the priest would bless it like he would baptize an infant, and then they would launch it into the sea in the hopes that God would bless this seafaring vessel. And in our day and age, we just sort of smash vodka or champagne or whatever on the hull, and we say, all right, it's good to go, which is very American, I suppose. Um, The point being, when something important is built, we feel like we have to mark its entry into public life. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in our text. The temple has been built, and now they're sort of doing the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Um, We're told in verse 8 that Solomon, or chapter 8, verse 1, that Solomon assembles the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the leaders, the fathers of the houses of the people of Israel, before him in Jerusalem, to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. All the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast of the month of Athenim, which was in the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. They ultimately take this ark of the covenant, made famous by Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones movie, And they place it inside of the temple. 
And we're told in verse 10 that when the priests came out of the holy place where they'd placed the ark, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So the first step in sort of breaking in this temple is that they take the ark of the covenant and they place it in the heart of the temple. And the temple fills with this cloud of smoke. Now, contrary to what you might have experienced in the modern church, this is not them testing out their fog machines or their cool lights or anything. Um, No, what's actually going on here has a whole lot of biblical symbolism because this thick cloud is something that throughout the Old Testament represents and sort of embodies the physical presence of God. So, So when Moses ascends up the mountain of Sinai to meet with God for the Ten Commandments, Uh, There is this cloud that descends on the mountain. Uh, When the tabernacle, this sort of portable temple that goes with Israel through the desert, is set up, there's this cloud that descends of God's presence. When Israel's led through the wilderness during the 40 years, there's a pillar of cloud that is God's presence that guides them through the land. Actually, you go on to the New Testament, when Jesus ascends into heaven, we're told by Luke that a cloud obscures the disciples' view of him. That's not just an interesting meteorological phenomenon. I probably didn't say that word right. Um, That's not just like, oh, there was a cumulonimbus that blocked the view. Uh, No, this is a way of saying that Jesus enters into the presence of God. And so this is what happens. The temple is open for business. The presence of God fills the temple. And Solomon turns and he speaks to the people of Israel in verse 22. As he prays this prayer of dedication. And this is where we'll spend our time this evening. So let me read this text for us and we'll walk through it together. Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no one like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel if only your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you spoke to your servant David, my father. Solomon begins his prayer by standing in front of the altar and saying to God, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love. Now, in the, the Jewish mind, the best way to encompass everything, if we want to talk about the totality of creation, is to say heaven and earth, because that means everything that's above me and everything that's below me. And so Solomon begins by saying, there is no one like you in all that is above me and all that is below me. O God of Israel, there is nothing in all of creation that is like you. I wonder, for for the Christians in this room, have, have you rightly considered the utter uniqueness of the God that we serve? Like the total and utter unmatchable nature of the God that we're talking about, that there is literally nothing to which he can truly be compared. Uh, A couple years ago, we would do this class before college and career. We would walk through some of the basic doctrines of the faith, and Corey and I sort of split it up based on what we were most excited to teach. Um, 
And I'm excited about all things of God, but some things of God I'm most excited about. And uh, one of those things is the Trinity. Uh, so I picked the week on the Trinity uh, because that's my favorite thing to talk about. But what ends up happening when I have to teach on the Trinity is I have to really disappoint people by telling them that all their analogies that they've used are actually heresy. Um, so so maybe, maybe you've heard the analogy that the Trinity is like uh, water, steam, and ice. That's modalism. It's heresy. You would have gotten burned at the stake for it. Um, Maybe you've heard the analogy that the Trinity is like the shell of an egg, the white of an egg, and the yolk of an egg. That's partialism, also heresy. There's a toasty steak waiting for you if you confess it. (laughs) My favorite potential analogy for the Trinity that is unfortunately heresy is that the Trinity is like a taco where, (laughs) where the Father is the shell. I think the Son is the meat because he became flesh. I think that makes sense. And then the Spirit is the cheese that binds it all together. Again, heresy, unfortunately. So I'm sorry to, to rob you of all your good illustrations for the Trinity. Um, and as I'm teaching this class, I got through destroying everybody's favorite Trinity analogy. Um, and true to my nature, I was just going to leave it at that. I was just going to be like, yeah, so your analogies suck. Uh, anyways, any questions? <laughs> because I normally don't end things on a positive note. Um, but Beth actually said something that stuck with me. Um, she said, you know... If what scripture says about God is true, that that God is totally unique, that what Solomon prays here is accurate, that there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath keeping covenant, showing steadfast love, if there is no one like God, why wouldn't we be surprised that there's no analogy that works? If God is truly unique, then there could never have been an analogy that explained him. There's some that are maybe more helpful than others but they all fail to grasp the fullness of the God that we serve. Solomon says, there is no one like you above me or below me in all of the created world. And he he goes on to talk about God's uniqueness in the way that he's faithful. He says, O Lord God of Israel, there's no one like you in heaven above on earth beneath keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And he begins to list the ways that God has been faithful in keeping promises. Promises made to Israel, promises made to his father David, promises that are being fulfilled to him right now as he builds this temple and inaugurates it. He says, God, there is no one like you. And one of the things that makes you unique is that it could never be said of you that you have failed to deliver on the promises you've made. It could never be said of you that you have not made good on your word. It could never be said of you that you have broken a promise that you have spoken. And that could be said of even the best human being. It cannot be said of God. But there's promises in this text that Solomon says, God, would you make good on these? God, you fulfilled your promises to my father David. You're fulfilling this promise in building the temple. But then he goes on to say, now, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised to him. So Solomon's mind, as he prays, it's going in two directions. He's thinking back to the faithfulness of God, but he's looking forward to the things that God has not yet made good on. And he's using the previous faithfulness of God as a platform upon which to stand as he petitions God for further faithfulness. There's a song that we used to sing an awful lot, which is why we don't sing it as much anymore, because I think we, we killed it. Um, Come Thou Fount. And it's, it's my favorite hymn. I love it. I would sing it all five songs of every service, 24-7, and just weep 
uncontrollably, but a lot of people aren't as sanctified as me, and so they need a break. Um, <laughs> but there's a line in the song where I would venture to say a lot of us have sung it and sung it and sung it. We don't really know what it means, but we just trust that me and Corey wouldn't let us sing heresy, so it's probably fine. And it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. For many of us, the only time we've heard the word Ebenezer is in a Christmas carol. It's Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, but the word Ebenezer is actually a biblical term. It's a term that that's, finds its sort of first appearance in First Samuel after Israel's experienced this victory in their national life. And the prophet Samuel takes this stone and he sets it up among the people of Israel. And they name the stone Ebenezer which means stone of help. And then it goes on in the text to explain that they named it this so that when they looked to the stone, they could say, the Lord has helped me thus far. So that in their sort of national life, anytime they would be tempted to doubt what God was going to do for them as a nation, how God was going to care for them in the future, they would look to this stone and say, God's helped us this far. Based on his previous faithfulness, we'll trust in his continued goodness. Now, I'm not the sort of person who preaches like New Year, New You sermons. I think they're cliche and worn out and not even very helpful because uh, I've never kept any of my New Year's resolutions. So generally, it's a new year and the same old me uh, with more regret. So <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to point us in that direction, but, but it is worth at the beginning of a new year reflecting just back on God's faithfulness in this last year thinking about what what the Ebenezer stones in your own life might be, the ways that you might be able to say, God has helped me thus far, the sins that you once struggled with that now you have victory over, the relationships that were damaged that have been restored, the hope that was lost that's beginning to creep back into your heart. It's worth it as as you enter this new year and endeavor to trust God with the next 360-something days that you would reflect back as Solomon did on God's previous faithfulness, that you would raise your own Ebenezer and say, God's helped me thus far, and I'll trust him as I move forward. This is what Solomon does in his prayer. He says, you were faithful to my father David. You've kept your promises, but there's more you have to keep, and I'm trusting that you've kept these. You'll keep the ones that are coming. He goes on in verse 27. He says, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God. Listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this palace or towards this place. Listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When they pray towards this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Solomon asks this sort of cynical question, I would say, at the beginning. I mean, he's just seen what's happened. that The presence of God has entered this temple He's standing in front of it. The people are standing in front of it. They're seeing the, the cloud of God's presence in it. And he almost realizes the absurdity of what's just happened. He says, is God really going to dwell on the earth? Like, I know what just happened, but this, this thing that I've built with my sinful hands, is God really going to dwell here? 
in the midst of his people. He sort of pushes on past that, and he offers these petitions. He doesn't really answer his own question. He says, is God really going to dwell here? Well, if he is, here we go. And he asks God for really four things. He asks, one, that God would see his people. Two, he asks that God would hear his people. Three, he asks that God would listen to his people. Four, he asks that God would forgive his people. See hear, listen, forgive. Ultimately, what Solomon prays for is that God would be present in the life of the nation of Israel. See us, hear us, listen to us, forgive us. You know, it seems like the common sort of default response to suffering is to ask God why. When things go bad in our life, when when we lose people we love, when relationships turn sour, when friendships implode, when job opportunities fall through, what we tend to think is that if God would explain to us why this was happening, it would make it better. And in some sense, that, that may be true. And in some sense, the Bible gives us sort of a framework for understanding why life goes wrong, why sin corrupts the world that we're in. But I don't think the Bible is interested in answering all of those questions. I think the Bible is actually wiser than our questions. Because we tend to think that God explaining why will dull the pain. When in fact, what we really need in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, is not answers, but presence. What we need in the midst of our darkness is not an explanation for why this is happening, but the promise that we're not alone in it. This is why the psalmist can say in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. Not because you've explained it. Not because you've given me an answer for why I am in the valley, but because you're here with me in it. Or again and again, when God issues his most frequent command in Scripture, fear not. Sometimes it's coupled with an answer, fear not, because this is what I'm going to do. More often, it's coupled with, fear not, I'm with you. Not answers, but the promise of presence. This is what Solomon pleads for the people of Israel. That God would see them, that he would hear them, that he would listen to them, that he would forgive them, that he would be present so that whatever happens in their national life. We'll get to the rest of Solomon's prayer next week where he talks about uh, issues of sin, he talks about famine, he talks about war. All of these difficulties, what he asks is that God would simply be present in the midst of it. Solomon asks this question sort of at the end of our passage, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Solomon gets sort of a temporary answer to that question, which is, yeah, kind of. Uh, Obviously, God has sort of inhabited the temple. Uh, You see sort of the presence of God in the the glory cloud, if I can use that word, though it's been appropriated in some strange ways. But God leaves eventually. Eventually. You can get to the book of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel sees this vision of the presence of God leaving Israel. It's not until you get to the New Testament that Solomon's question begins to be answered fully. Will God indeed dwell upon the earth? And John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Solomon asks again, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? And after the ascension of Christ, James says that the Spirit of God now dwells within us. And Solomon asks again, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? And John in the book of Revelation answers, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man in the return of Christ. Uh, Ultimately, what Solomon wanted is what we need as human beings, as Christians. Not necessarily God's answers, but God's presence. And this is the gift of the gospel. Uh, the, The gift of the gospel of Jesus is not your best life now. It's not good people being made better. The gift of the gospel is that we get God. The gift of the gospel is that he now dwells among us in the church, in his people, by the Spirit, and in the return of Christ physically to wipe every tear from our eyes. What Solomon wanted in front of this temple of Israel was God's presence, and it is what has been given to us and poured out without measure by the risen, reigning, ruling, and returning Christ. So the question, will God dwell upon the earth? It's answered in the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And whatever you might be walking through in this season, uh, I would commend to you this. God has not left you there by yourself. He may not leave you with answers, but there's the promise of his presence in the church among his people and by his spirit. 